0: Hello everyone, Uh, welcome. This is year 2008, June 12th. Uh, It's an ontolog invited speaker session again. Today we have uh, the pleasure of having Dr. Christopher Welty with us. Uh, Chris Welty is from IBM Research and he is also the chair of the W3C RIF Working Group. Uh, Chris will be giving a talk today on RIF, the Rules Interchange Format, which is the up-and-coming Semantic Web Standard. Uh, Dr. Welty is a research scientist at the IBM T.J. Watson Research Center in New York, and he has been teaching computer science at VASA and Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute previously, and accumulated over 14 years of teaching experience before moving to industrial research. Uh, his principal uh, principal area of research are uh, in knowledge representation, and especially in ontologies and the Semantic Web. Um, he. He is the chair, as I mentioned, the chair of the Rules in the Change Format Working Group at W3C, and he has also been a co-developer of the OntoClean methodology with Nicola Guarino in Italy. Without further ado, uh, Chris, please go ahead.
1: Okay. Thank you, Peter. so th- those of you who are connected to the VNC uh, can see the slides I'll be following along there. Uh, so if I forget to uh, say the slide number, um, you should be able to follow that there. If you're not, I'll, I'll try to remember to say the slide numbers and also for people who are listening to this after it's been recorded. So, um,
0: Excuse me, Chris. For those who are behind corporate firewalls and may not be able to get the VNC shared screen, you can click on the the link that says slides and then bring the slide deck to your own desktop and run it. As Chris says, he will be prompting all of us to advance the
1: slides. So sorry, Chris, go ahead. Okay. All right, so I'm gonna talk about the rules interchange format this is a working group that started in December of 2005 in the W3C. It's a rec track or recommendation track working group, which means that we were chartered to create a standard specification for the web uh, under the W3C. This is the same Activity and organization, of course, that standardized RDF and OWL. And this working group was envisioned uh, a long time ago to be the, the next step after OWL. So if you can advance to the first slide, um, or slide two, really. Uh, so the, the focus of our working group is rules, and rules are everywhere, uh, when most people think of rules, they think of uh, things you can 't do actually in in a rules in in the lingo of the rules community that 's called a constraint so um, not being allowed on the grass is uh, a constraint, technically not a rule. Rules are generally things that have a if and a then part. so slide three. This is a, a slightly outdated, but not completely outdated, view of W3C standards. Uh, everything, of course, is based on on uh, the Internet at the bottom. And then there's, I think there's an animation here. If you advance one click, there's a circle on the Semantic Web section. Uh, so that's where... Uh, The the W3C organizes its standardization efforts in a bunch of these different activities. Uh, So you can see those activities are the columns there. And the Semantic Web activity has been the one that has done RDF and OWL. Uh, uh, There have been a couple other working groups in, in that activity, but the principal standards are RDF, OWL, and hopefully now RIF. Next slide. Slide number four. So, some of you may have seen or heard of the Semantic Web Layer Cake. This was sort of the architecture of the Semantic Web that was published in the first description of what the vision of the Semantic Web was. The idea was to incrementally build layers uh, on top of each other that would add more uh, capability for representing machine semantics. Well, starting with uh, URIs at the very bottom, really, uh, and then some character encoding scheme, building on XML, and then RDF of course was intended to be sort of the data layer for the semantic web. It's a triple format, and then the next layer was supposed to be the ontology vocabulary layer that sort of defined within RDF a set of special vocabulary for describing ontologies. And then a layer above that was supposed to add more uh, first-order logical um, capabilities to the ontology vocabulary that would allow you to actually do inference. Um, and then there was a, sort of a, another level that would abstract the idea of proving something away, and then a layer that would uh, provide trust. But this architecture for the semantic web changed. Uh, so on the next slide, slide five, um, you can see that at some past point, there are a couple layers were added. Uh, the work of the RDF working group actually ended up adding some vocabulary to R- RDF was supposed, originally envisioned to be just a language for, for graphs, semantic graphs, labeled graphs. Uh, but they added some of their own vocabulary as part of the RDF effort. Um, that began to implement part of what the original vision called the ontology vocabulary. And then OWL came along and um, added some more, and then there was supposed to be a rules layer, a logic layer, a proof layer, and a trust layer. Next slide. And you can see the rules layer kind of got added between the logic and the proof and trust. And now, more or less, uh, the – ah, my machine just went. Now more or less the uh, the the standards were understood enough was understood about the way the standards were progressing that when the rules working group was chartered, it was clear that we were not going to be building on top of um, of OWL. So initially, the charter for the RIF working group was uh, envisioned to be uh like what uh, to, to the outcome was envisioned to be like what owls was which was, which owls originally chartered to build its syntax on uh, rdf this actually turned out to be a huge challenge for the owl working group and something that a lot of people in that working group resented um, and so in fact in the charter for RIF, uh, any dependence on rdf was also uh, eliminated uh next slide so this is slide seven. So really in some at some uh so this is still slide six. There's a little animation here meant to indicate that you know rules are basically could be done at any part in this, uh in this architecture. Okay, so some background. Um I, I guess there I guess these bullets are animated. You can um, proceed. Uh all right, stop there. So the um Before RIF started, there was already a lot of work on OWL. Uh, OWL was a big success in the academic world, uh, of limited success, uh, but we're seeing uh, increasing uh, visibility in the industrial world. Uh, The main idea of the semantic web, really the vision of it, was to uh, enable interoperability and in order to get that uh, for machine semantics, we need, to, we need to specify formally what these uh, representation languages actually mean. Um, what became clear after uh, the community started studying rules was that there were a lot of systems out there, uh, literally hundreds of implemented rule systems out there, some in the commercial sector, some were being sold as software packages, some were free or parts of, you know, being shared among groups, Um, some were academic, some were industrial. Uh, We tried to compile a list, but it's it's really quite enormous, especially if you start counting Prolog as a rule system, uh, the number of implementations is really tremendous. There were a couple of proposals for being, for semantic web specific rule languages like Swirl, and RuleML was sort of XML based um, markup language for existing rule systems, uh, the web rule language and so on. Uh, a lot of implemented systems And uh, there was a workshop held in April of 2005 where a lot of implementers of rule systems, including industrial representatives of production rule companies and uh, academic researchers and just people interested in, in rules met. And what was clear from that workshop was that every single individual representing some rule implementation had the agenda of making sure that their implementation was made the standard and not some other implementation. And with no one willing to give ground there, um, it looked like there wasn't going to be any possibility of actually standardizing one using a consensus-based process that W3C uses in uh, working groups. So, next slide. We This should be slide eight, yeah. Um, all right. Skip uh, to the next. Oh, yeah, there we go. Um, so one of the one of the main <laughs> divides or rifts between the members of the working group once it was formed, um, the working group was was basically chartered to provide rule interchange and not necessarily to provide a new rule language for the semantic web. Uh, one of the reasons that there was quite a bit of controversy or I, I guess really the two main sources there were two main sources of of um, divisiveness within the working group. One came from basically the description logic and owl community versus the uh, logic programming community and the biggest difference between the first order logic and logic programming community is their treatment of negation in um, logic programming systems, they make a closed world assumption, uh, which is similar to database query languages. I mean, if you ask for something and it's not in, there, in your database at the time you ask, then you assume that, the, that it's false. That introduces non-monotonicity if you end up adding the positive assertion into your database. So that kind of assumption doesn't fit in OWL, or in any first-order language, because first-order languages are monotonic. That means you can't ever have a model of it that that uh, implies deletion of, of, of facts. Um, so this is at odds with, basically, database-type systems. This is at odds with production systems. And this is at odds with a large uh, academic community that's been studying logic programming for a long time. Also, the fact that OWL was not strictly layered on RDF at all anyway. Um, OWL-DL, for example, does not extend the RDF semantics. It uh, creates its own semantics, and that was seen as a precedent for just doing that again. So this was creating uh, quite a bit of divisiveness. And then on the next slide, even given that, that that was going to be a contentious problem we also had the issue that there were a bunch of rule system vendors in the working group who also saw an interest in enabling interoperability between existing rule system and production rule implementations. And You can see on the slide there some of the uh, you know, vendors in this space, iLog, Fair Isaac, uh, Haley, Oracle, and IBM, and uh, several others. They already had a standardization effort out of OMG called the Production Rule. Uh, I forget what the other R representation maybe stood for, and and, but that was just a basically an attempt to to build the UML meta model for production rule for production rules. So you can think of it as a data structure for production rules. The RIF working group was chartered with actually specifying how these things worked through formal semantics. Um, The vendors did not really believe that that was a good way to achieve interoperability, although many of them eventually became convinced to the contrary it was a two-year process. So we knew that this working group to start with was going to be difficult uh, because we knew already that there was going to be contention between the people who believed in the open world and the closed world assumption. We knew that there was going to be contention between academics and um, industrial members, and we knew there was going to be contention between the production rule style of rule system and the logic programming and OWL style of rule system. So we knew the the work of the working group would not be easy. Next slide. Uh, and so I, inc- I include a, a, a quote here uh, about negation. Um, the this is from Mel Fitting, who who said uh, almost ten years ago now that. Uh, uh, in addition to this, he also said there's there's uh, a lot of, so many rule systems, one needs a map to navigate through them. And they all make such subtle distinctions from each other that their uh, inventors seem to feel are so critically important. Um, it's really very difficult to someone who doesn't appreciate the subtlety why, why these differences matter. Okay, next slide. So, one approach you could take to the problem of rule system interoperability is to define a language that's so expressive that every other language, anything you can say in any other rule language can be said um, in your, you know, interchange language. And this was the approach some of you, uh, I know in the ontolog community at least, uh, attended the talk I gave um, or maybe Pat Hayes gave it actually on the IKL uh, extension to common logic, which was basically a um, IKL stood for. It was basically an interchange language for logic-based um, knowledge representation systems, and it took this approach. It, it added so much expressivity that you would not ever imagine anyone would implement IKL itself but just use it as a standard way to specify translations. Um, however, we decided right at the beginning that we were not gonna take such an approach because first of all, the difference between monotonic and non-monotonic reasoning, uh, we n- nobody really knows how to capture that in a single system. So the next approach on slide 12 that we considered was to identify a core language, and this is basically how the working group was chartered. Um, you'll see in a few slides we ended up changing a little bit, but this is how the working group was originally chartered, that we were going to um, identify the common core uh, so that at least some rules, from any rule language could be translated into any other rule language. So the idea is not to capture all the – be able to translate or interchange all rules between two systems, but just the ones that are represented by this core, which is the intersection, basically, of functionality between every uh, rule system that was represented in the working group. Um, now, of course, imagining what that core would be at the beginning was uh, was difficult. Uh, we guessed that it would be something like horn logic um, or possibly even simpler like data log. Uh, we worked on this with this approach for basically the first year and a half, and uh, the working group continued trying to identify a core language again representing the intersection of all rule languages but we were including in in that core uh, the production rule systems as well as logic programming systems and as well as first order systems and it finally became clear um, by about a, after about a year and a half of the working group that we were never going to reach consensus on a core and we split the working group uh, not really the working group, but we split the work of the working group into two parts. One focused on capturing a core production rule language, and another to capture a core logic language. And so um, on the next slide, uh, approach three was uh, basically our goal here, as, as it is now, has been to define what we're calling the basic logic dialect. So that's how we got to where we are. We have a basic logic dialect, which is the common subset for rule languages between first-order systems, open-world systems, and logic programming, closed-world systems. Uh, And one of the important elements of the, of this basic logic dialect that makes it common to both systems is there is no negation. So it's the uh, rules, are you're not, you don't syntactically do not have the ability to do negation in any rules. Um, but we also define the language in such a way, the dialects in such a way that it's easy to extend them if you want to add forms of negation, for example, um, to a dialect. It's, it's pretty easy to do uh and so after we decided to split the working group the production rule identification of the production rule core went much slower uh it's just entering it'll just be released finally as its first working draft um, by the end of this month uh so that's still got a, a ways to go but the basic logic dialect uh has been pretty stable for about 6 months um, and so on slide uh, 14, uh, just a slight modification that we added uh, this year was uh, also as part of RIF to define the framework, the syntactic and semantic framework by which RIF dialects are specified, um, in particular, logic dialects at the moment, because those are the only dialects we ha- anyone had taken the time to write. Um, but we're working on extending this uh, framework to uh, production rule dialects as well, now that we have something to work with. Uh, so, as, I, as it says on the slide, this is a, sort of in an alpha release mode, the framework for logic dialects. So it'll be released as a uh, working draft at the end of this month as well. Um BLD is one example of how to instantiate that framework to create a dialect and again, as I said this particular dialect is um, uh, the the, interse- the core logic dialect which basically uh, does not have negation. So next slide, slide 15. Uh, just to give some credit I'm the co-chair of the RIF Working Group, along with uh, Christian de Marie from uh, ILOG, and uh, Sandra Haw- Hawk from W3C has also been part of the leadership team in the Working Group. But we, Chairs don't, uh, Working Group Chairs generally don't do a lot of technical work. Um, our jobs are to try to um, in, give incentives to the members to actually do things and try to keep make sure everyone follows a process, that uh, that there's a consensus-based uh, decision-making process. But for the most part, the work um, and, and the decision spaces uh, that the working group chooses from are defined by the people who actually are willing to sit down and write a spec. It's very time-consuming and can be a very frustrating process because you can write a spec and everyone can reject it, and you have to go back and write another one. Um, You have to deal with uh, comments and criticism and and feedback that's intended to be constructive but may not necessarily be phrased that way. Uh, And so Michael Kiefer from uh, Sonybrook University and Harold Boley from the uh, National Research Council of Canada both deserve all the credit for uh, what what I'm going to be talking about in this uh, talk. Um, yeah, Mike Dean, uh, for those of you who know him, uh, is at BBN, but uh, BBN is not a member of the W3C. So Mike has joined the working group uh, as a... SRI contractor okay um, so I'm going to start now with with uh, what i what I imagine most of you want to hear, which is um, about the basic logic dialect itself. so the initial design criteria I'm on slide uh, sixteen now. The initial design criteria for L D was Uh, again, to provide an interchange format. This requirement and this approach to design was very effective in allowing the working group to navigate around all of the controversies and especially the issues that we had in the working group trying to get work done while everyone in the working group was really trying to make, make their own rule language be the semantic web rule language. So rather than focusing on anointing one existing language, we were focusing more on identifying what the features of different languages were and how they could be interchanged with other rule languages. Of course, in the end, the basic logic dialect could easily be viewed in its own right as a rule language. That's fine. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. It's important to understand that the way it came to be the way it is is because we designed it with interchange in mind and not necessarily with its use as a rule language in mind. So BLD, the basic logic dialect, it is a definite horn language, so horn clauses uh, are basically uh, a normal form for representing simple rules that have a, uh, a, a single literal in the, in the consequent of the rule. Rules. People in the rules community call a rule. Uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> Skipping ahead here. So a uh, horn clause is basically some disjunction of of atoms that has exactly one positive atom. In other words, a disjunction of negative negated atoms with one positive um, atom. Which, uh, if you know a little first order logic, you know is the same as having a, an implication. With only, of all positive atoms, with only one positive atom on, in the, in the consequence. So that's a horn clause. And, um, we add to what most people think of as horn rules, uh, the notion of equality, exact equality. We add functions. Um, which are not in a lot of horn languages, and it's got a standard first-order semantics. And in the absence of negation, of course, we, uh, the, this semantics underlies logic programming as well as first-order logic. The BLD has a few syntactic features designed, uh, again, with interoperability in mind. There's a syntactic notion of objects and frames. It's really just syntactic sugar, uh, but it makes it easier to represent and therefore to translate rules that, that use um, objects with slots and values. Excuse me. It's a semantic web language, so of course it has, um, it's IRI based. And uh, the syntax, the, the normative syntax is XML with, uh, with a, a normative XML schema that you can use to validate documents. And like OWL and RDF, we support a, and a wide array of um, XML schema data types and their associated. And unlike OWL, we also support their associated built-ins. Um, The presentation syntax, which I'm going to be using in most of the examples and which is used throughout the spec, is not normative. It's kind of ugly. Uh, It's there just to avoid writing XML. It's not intended to be implemented, although we have no doubt that someone will probably implement it as a syntax. And finally, uh, BLD provides a notion of metadata, a very flexible notion of metadata, and the ability to import um, other RIF rule sets from from uh, around the web. So let's start with an overview of um, the actual what the what the language actually is. I'm getting all of this from the BLD document. Um, the, if you go to the RIF Working Group homepage, which is on the Ontolog wiki. Uh, you click on that, and you'll see a, a table right at the beginning there that that has pointers to all the documents. And so the one we're talking about this week is BLD, and uh, two weeks from now, I believe uh, Yas de Brown from the University of Bolzano who uh, worked on the OWL and RDF compatibility document will uh, will talk about that. So I'm actually not going to talk about the interoperation between RIF, BLD, and RDF, or OWL, and how that's envisioned uh, this week. Yos uh, will talk about that in, uh, in two, two weeks' time. Is that right, Peter? Yep, in two weeks on yep. the 26th.
0: So those who are with us here could look at the session two weeks from now as sort of the second part of the sequel. Right.
1: So I'm just going to cover the basics of the language now for the next maybe 20 minutes and then uh, take your questions. Uh, So like any uh, semantic language, uh, the grounding of this is in symbols. They're so used to identify all the elements, uh, all the domain elements that you're going to want to define. So your constants, your uh, that includes predicate names, function names, class names, uh, uh, and the actual op- symbols that represent objects in the domain. Could um, you tell us what slide we should be on? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Uh so this is slide 17, symbols? Yeah, move my screen around so I can see the chat and I lost my view. There we go. Uh, okay, so there's, uh, RIF has sort of a, what you might consider a bizarre way of treating symbols. Uh, every symbol has a lexical space which defines the, the visual or lexical representation of the symbol itself. And then it has a uh, symbol space which identifies where that, um, you know, wh- what that, what that uh, uh, lexical representation identifies constraints on the lexical representation, such as this is a string or this is a URI, or, this is an integer. So RIF actually, to be flexible, allows you to use any symbol as a constant name, a function name, a predicate name. You know, you can have a predicate called one if you want. Um, You know, you can have a predicate that's an IRI. You can have a predicate that's a day, um, as well as more obvious things of having um, object constants be those uh, values as well. The most commonly used symbol spaces um, are the string, local, and IRI uh Symbol spaces, so these are, consider these as just primitive types on on uh, symbols. So, strings are obviously what you expect, and they're actually this syntax, which is, quote, then the uh, lexical representation of the symbol, close quote, and then two hats, and then some identifier for the symbol space, which is an IRI. Um, so, there's... Uh, XSD string is just the XML schema string data type, uh, which is for basic strings. Um, then there is RIFIRI, IRI, which I- is meant to indicate that the, the type IRI because there, this is subtly different than the, um, any IRI data type in XML schema. Uh, and then finally riff local is sort of a unique one to RIF, RIF local is allows you to have constants which are not IRIs and which are, these are just constant symbols that are local to some particular set of rules, some particular document. Um, so RIF local is a um, a constant which is not an IRI, again, and is used, considered to have a scope that is local to the document that it's defined in. All right, next slide, 18. Um, so rules are basically, uh, conceptually, we think of rules uh, as, as I said at the beginning, not things like uh, "keep off the grass," or, but, but something that has an if part and a then part. Um, in the syntax, we talk about the condition and the conclusion. In logic, we talk about the antecedent and the consequent. In logic programming, they talk about the body and the head. So the head is the consequence or the conclusion. The body is the condition or the antecedent. And one of the reasons they refer to, uh, they use the terminology of head and body. If you look at the uh, syntax, actually, the BLD syntax has a very logic programming style syntax where the consequence is actually written first, and that's why it's often referred to as the head. And so you can see in the BLD syntax for rule, uh, this is, in in Horn clauses, all variables that can appear in the conclusion have to be only, they're only allowed to be universally quantified variables. If you're familiar with uh, first-order logic, you can't have existentially quantified variables in the conclusion. Um, this creates uh, this, this moves you basically out of Horn, um, and would it would be an easy extension to make to BLD, but it would mean if we added uh, existentials to the conclusion, it would mean that BLD was no longer the common intersection between a lot of uh, existing rule languages, because there are a lot of rule languages that do not allow for existentials in the conclusion. So all variables that appear in the conclusion have to be universally quantified. Uh, we do allowed, allow existential in the condition part. So you can have additional variables in the condition uh, that may be may or may not be existentially quantified. Um, so there are a lot of restrictions on the conclusion or on the head. Um, again, no existential quantification there, there's no disjunction allowed in the, in the conclusion, and no calls to external functions. Uh, you can have functions in the conclusion, but not ex- calls to external functions. External functions are basically a, a mechanism to provide uh, built-in. Um, and, and as I said, the conditions can contain conjunction, disjunction, and existentials. We we recently extended BLD to allow uh, conjunction in the in the uh, conclusion or in the head. Uh, that that was a a recent uh, advance, and um, it's really just syntactic sugar. So next slide. So, as I mentioned, the BLD extends HORN in a few simple ways. Uh, It provides functions. It provides uh, functions as external calls, and it also provides the ability for external predicates. So, we have uh, predicates for type checking, for example, um, Boolean predicates that basically uh, tell you whether something is of the right type, um, there's also functions for casting between types, uh, and basically for every XML schema data type that a dialect supports, it also supports all the built-in functions and predicates that XML schema defines for that data type. And this is one of the most useful things that, I, that RIF, uh, that BLD provides, that uh, RDF and OWL really missed out on. Um, so, in addition, uh, we extend HORN with equality. So, uh, I'll show, I think I have an example of equalities. So you can have equality anywhere. Um, like, like any other semantic web language, you can equate two URIs and say that they're the same. Uh, there's a syntactic extension for that for, gives you a frame-like notation. It's really just syntactic sugar but uh, it provides a nice, uh, readable, and easy-to-translate uh, representation for object-oriented rules, for example. And it also, the frames are the mechanism that uh, Jost de Brown will talk about in two weeks that we used to um, define the RDF and OWL compatibility. So both RDF and OWL compatibility are defined through the frame mechanism. Uh, the frame mechanism provides a type and some syntax for typing um, frames and for subclassing them. Uh, we needed to provide a different uh, – are, are people hearing some background noise from my phone? Do you hear other people talking?
0: Uh, very minimally. It's,
1: it's okay. okay. If it becomes a problem, let me know. It's – Someone in the next office. I guess they're talking very loud. The um, uh, okay. So the uh, subclass notion that's provided in the in the frame structure in DLD is very slightly different from the subclass notion of RDF. Um, RDF's subclass is defined to be um, symmetric. Uh, meaning that every class is a subclass of itself. Um, in uh, RIF, subclass relation is, is proper subclass, meaning that uh, every class is not necessarily a subclass of itself. So it, it doesn't follow from um, X being a class, that X is a subclass of X. And you can say that, of course, it's not... Uh, it's not constrained away, but it's not uh, entailed as it is in, in RDF. Um, a lot of rule languages provide that notion—the the notion of proper subclass. This is proper in the sense of proper subset versus subset. So, a proper subclass is a, is a subclass relation that doesn't include um, uh, the, the symmetric one or reflexive one. Excuse me, I keep uh, getting those backwards. So. RDF subclass is reflexive, um, every class is a subclass of itself, RIF subclass is not reflexive. Um, and then uh, Yass will probably mention this in two weeks when he talks about OWL and RDF compatibility. We define the RIF subclass relationship to be a property of the RDF subclass relationship. Okay, Uh, also there's some syntactic sugar in VLD for handling, actually it's not syntactic sugar, it's quite a complex syntactic and semantic mechanism for providing uh, named argument functions and named argument predicates. And there the idea is to allow you to specify arguments to predicates without requiring them to be in a particular order. However, it should be noted that Unlike a lot of systems that provide um, name, ar, you know, naming for arguments, uh, like keyword arguments or something like that, unlike such systems, no arguments are optional. This is a complete first-order monotonic system. Uh, optional arguments uh, would introduce non-monotonicity. Again, you could extend BLD with a dialect that did provide uh, optional arguments, But it's important not to confuse having named arguments with having um, optional arguments. So, if you have a predicate or a function with named arguments, it does not imply that you can leave one of the names out. You You still have to provide a value for every argument. All right, next slide is slide 20. So here's an example of what things look like in the uh, BLD presentation syntax as I mentioned the presentation syntax is non-normative uh we use it because XML is so horrible for communicating between people uh so every one of these struct every one of these um, syntactic elements in the presentation syntax corresponds to a uh to an XML tag in the XML syntax the XML syntax is fully striped, so it, uh, you know, you, there's a very obvious trend uh, into XML. Uh, another thing to note here is that we add, because the presentation syntax with this, um, yeah, if you can jump back to slide 17... Uh, so just recalling this special syntax for symbols that defines their uh, symbol space and so forth, we introduced a, a special syntax for the common um, the, these three common symbol spaces. So strings are denoted. Uh, the, the shortcut for strings is just to have something in quotes with no double hat. Uh, the shortcut for IRIs is to have something in angle brackets with no double hat. And the shortcut for RIF local is to have something with an underscore in front of it, no quotes, just an underscore and no double hat. Uh, okay, so back to slide 20. Um, so you can see here that I'm using um, local symbols for um, P, Q, and R. They're preceded by an underscore. So those are all equivalent to quote, Q. Close quote hat hat riff colon local and we'll see in the XML syntax in a few slides that that's how it's actually going to be serialized into XML. Okay, so the basic structural notion uh, of a um, well, the basic structural notion of BLD is a rule. Uh, rules have conditions and conclusions, as you as as we saw in, addition, in previous slides with this. Uh, logic programming symbol, uh, the colon dash symbol. I think it's supposed to look kind of like a left arrow. Um, that is the uh, uh, syntax for rules. And then rules are required to be, every rule is required to be in a group. Uh, one of the notions of putting a rule in a group uh, is to if you have several um several rules that define a single predicate, as, as we have in this first example. Um, you you may, I mean, you're not required, but you may, every rule is required to be in one group, but you can put multiple rules in a group. And again, one of the reasons you might want to do that is if you have a bunch of rules that define a single predicate. So here we have a definition of the predicate Q, and there's two rules uh, that define it. Um, now, as I mentioned um we do allow disjunction in the uh, condition in RIF. So, in fact, that first rule there could have been rewritten with disjunction between in the condition between um, P and R. So I could have written that as P or R, um, uh, if P or R, then Q. Uh, and then it's also required that every group be in a document. And so documents are sort of the basic uh, – there's one – you know, a document corresponds to something that has a URL. So this is a, a single thing that we imagine being on the web. Um, documents also have some metadata associated with them for doing imports and um, naming and, and other things. So the second uh, set of rules there – uh, introduces, in addition to showing that you can have multiple groups within a document, uh, you can also use IRIs as uh, symbol names, and I, that's a syntax error on my part. There should be angle brackets around the EX colon OP. Uh, so I'm going to at least fix it in my slides. So that EXOP is a predicate name there. That should be have angle brackets around it in the shortcut presentation syntax. Next slide. Okay, so um, here's just a simple example of a rule that you might actually want to use. Um, documents have some metadata associated with them that can um, be useful, like a prefix notation for um, URI uh, shortcuts. Correspond th- that would Imagine corresponding to um, namespaces in uh, some XML dialect. Uh, But again, this is just for the presentation syntax. The um, XML syntax is just XML, so there's no such notion there. But in the presentation syntax, you can define prefixes and imports. And so here we have a rule that's basically mapping between uh, two binary relations – um, and it basically says that if i have a uh relation called starring between a, a movie and an actor and i know the movie's name and i know the actor's name i have some other relation in my namespace um, that's actually between strings um, well that the rule doesn't say it but the uh, value of rdfs label is normally a string um, and so uh you could imagine that's what the the intention of this rule is, so this rule also shows uh, using the conjunction in this in the uh, conclusion in the presentation syntax uh, you can see the syntax for variables here uh, and so forth. okay, next slide um, all right, and so this is uh, the sa- pretty much the same example. I mean, it's, it's semantically a different example, but it, it's a different way that you might represent the same kind of mapping using the frame syntax. Um, really, unfortunately, the uh, editors preferred this uh, strange arrow syntax for connecting, for indicating. Uh, the connection from a slot to a value there. So that arrow should not be read uh, as I always read it since I'm a logician as a implication. That arrow there, that dash greater than, is a, in the presentation syntax, basically you read that by saying I have an object which is gonna get bound to the variable movie, and that object has a slot called um, DVP starring. Whose value is going to get bound to the variable actor, and which has an RDFS label slot whose value is going to get bound to um, the variable mname. Um, uh, and so, in this example, I, you can see it's the, it's the same idea as the last one. I have an actor with a label whose value is a name, and a movie with a um, a starring relation to the actor and the RDFS label to the M name. This is actually the syntax that EOS will talk about in two weeks uh, that we use for, we actually use for representing RDF triples. Um, so this is the RDF, uh, the RIF syntax for RDF triples. Uh, and it's very much like the turtle syntax that allows you to abbreviate if you have multiple slots. Um, or properties for the same object that you want to talk about in a rule. And so, again, this rule, like the previous one, basically uh, gives you uh, an actor in relation between two RDFS label values, which you would imagine being the actor name and the movie name. Okay, next slide. Uh, almost done here. Um Just another example again, more unfortunate syntax. Uh, the dash greater than sign is also used in the syntax to indicate a connection between an argument name and its value. So you can see this is again the same um, semantically, this is a different example, but you can imagine this being a different way of approaching the same problem of wanting to map a relation between two objects that have a name property to a relation between two names. Um, you know that's the mapping problem that these past three rules have addressed. This is just a different way of expressing the same kind of idea. Although, again, I don't mean to say it's the same idea in that the results of running these rules would be the same. The results of running these rules are all different, but they are all different ways of representing the same thing. Um, so here we have, again, the actor in predicate, but now instead of the arguments being positional, the arguments are named. So I have an actor in um, relation between, again, an actor name and a movie name, but the actor name argument has a name, actor, and the movie name argument has a name movie name. So the, the hyphen greater than uh, inside round brackets are variable names for, or argument names for a predicate or a function. In this case, it's a predicate. And the, the, that hyphen greater than inside square brackets is a uh, slot name to slot value syntax. Um, and that's what you get when, you know, you try to design something by committee. All right, next slide is slide 24. Uh, so just a, ver- a brief, and now you can see why we have, a, as bad as the presentation syntax may be, you can see why it's necessary just to communicate between people about these kinds of rules. It's just impossible to, to communicate using the XML syntax, Way too verbose, but that's what it looks like. Um, and hopefully, it's obvious what the correspondence is. I'm not going to go through this because it's impossible. The only thing to note there is that uh, XML, uh, although all XML parsers do require that um, there are, that uh, XML be parsed in order, and the order is specified in the document. When this XML syntax for BLD is fully striped, and fully striped, if you don't know, means that it's sort of an object-oriented syntax. You can see that every other, starting at the end, uh, every other tag in the nesting is capitalized, which is just an internal convention for representing the fact that the capitalized stripes in the syntax represent an analogy to an object, and the lowercase stripes in the syntax are analogous to slot names. So you can imagine there's an and object with a slot called formula, whose value is an exist object that has a slot called declare, and a slot called formula, uh, and so forth. And so that fully-striped syntax is intended to be representable, for example, in any object-oriented language, including RDF, um, so you should be able to easily render the um, BLD syntax in any kind of object-oriented system, but when you would when you do that, you would of course lose the ordering because object-oriented systems don't have a notion of order on uh, slot values. And so you can see in there there's an args tag that has an ordered attribute. And that is a signal to any kind of object-oriented processor of this XML syntax that when you process the, um, you know, the values of this args, again, args is lowercase, so that's the convention of indicating that it's uh, a slot of its containing atom, um, so we need to know that all the values of that args slot are in a particular order because this, this in this example, we're representing the um, the arguments to uh, a predicate. Okay, next slide. Um, and just. Uh, um, couple notes on the use of metadata or the ability to specify metadata <coughs> excuse me in the XML syntax. Um, so any any of these class level stripes, so again by convention the class stripes you can see them because they're capitalized, although that's not significant in XML. It's just a convention that we're using the syntax to make it easier for people to see. The stripes, so any of those capitalized tags are considered class stripes, and the, any class stripe in uh, in the BLD XML syntax can have metadata hanging off of it. So you can identify really any bit, I mean, we, any bit of BLD syntax could be identified with metadata. You can imagine um, uh, here I've got where... I've got metadata on the – what is it on? I can't even read that slide. Hold on a second. What slide are we on, 25? Um, So the metadata there – yeah, can you – maybe I need to refresh. Oh, there we go yeah i just refresh if i had a problem with the vnc view of the page uh, so there's a refresh button on my vnc connection if you uh if you have such a thing you may want to refresh if it doesn't look right but there should be a meta tag underneath the and in the in this yeah. uh in slide 25 and so here i'm just saying you know this conjunction has a, um you know has a what did i say it has a publisher and um and the publisher is w3c you know why you would want to put that on a conjunction i don't know but you can i mean you might want to you can imagine at some point an editor uh going into a some bld uh uh data and adding um, you know and somebody editing a rule and adding a new conjunction to it and you might want to put a, put a bit of metadata on the conjunction as to when you added it to the you know, to the set to the rule set, for example. So, um, metadata can hang off any element, uh, any class level element, and so uh, the next slide, twenty-six, just shows uh, perhaps a more obviously useful example of metadata hanging off a group object. Uh, and so, in this case, I'm again saying that the, um, the the publisher here is is W3C, and in slide twenty-seven. Um, I have the metadata hanging off the documents. Um Again, another perhaps more likely place to put metadata, but it can go anywhere. And then finally, um, just uh, to let you know the status here, uh, BLD goes to Last Call uh, as well as the RDF and OWL uh, compatibility document. These are two separate documents. Uh, they both go to Last Call on June 23rd. Um, Last call in the W3C standards process means that the document will be frozen for about six to eight weeks, uh, with the opportunity for the, you know, anyone with web access to read the documents and post reviews and comments uh, on a public, uh, you know, there's a public email list that people can send email to with their comments. Uh, assuming uh, nobody comes up with any serious bugs, uh, the next step after last call is to actually go to candidate recommendation. Uh, candidate recommendation is uh, the phase of the W3C standardization process that's equivalent to a call for implementation. So we're expecting to have the candidate recommendation for this actually we're going to give the community a little bit longer than than the normal two months, so we're we're expecting it to be about a three-month last call period. Uh, and uh, please feel free to go to the RIF webpage, page. And um, there's several other documents being worked on that are not quite as stable, but uh, there's a document that provides a description of how data types, XML schema data types, and built-in predicates and functions for those data types are treated in in all RIF dialects. Um, Of course, there's only one RIF dialect at the moment, but we're uh, imagining by the time the working group closes in another year that we'll have at least a dialect that provides um, uh, open-world negation and a dialect that provides uh, negation as failure, a different dialect that provides negation as failure. All right, that's it. I ran a little bit long. I apologize, but we still have some time for questions. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh,
0: Okay, we come to the segment where we would uh, invite people to uh, ask questions and make comments. Again, uh, two ways to do it. One is to... Do it through the uh, chat chat room. If you are on your session page and you have not uh, gotten yourself into the chat room yet, uh, you can oops. You can see that. Uh, where is it? You can uh, click on this link, and it opens up into the chat session. Uh, so. As of now, let's see, we have uh, several people on the chat session, nine people on the chat session already and one hand up, I mean, there's a hand button. If you click on that, uh, 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 your hand will show up there. The other method to get queued up is to press a one one on your keypad. Uh, your phone keypad, so if you would like to make a comment, please press 1-1 one, one now, and uh, we will again uh, take questions in order. Um, so I will give everyone a moment to press 1-1 one, one on their keypad if they have a question. Uh, in the meantime, let us take maybe the first question uh, from Ravi Sharma. Uh, Ravi, if you would do it.
2: Star three. Peter, to I'm sorry I joined uh, late, but I did catch a lot of gist and also downloaded the slides. So Professor Welty, uh, the question is, um, I... Um, I saw some of the RIF documents on W3C that were open to the public. For others, they require sign-in, which I didn't have time to do. But there is a concept of multiple dialogues joining together. Uh, is there a concept of like, uh, when we, sorry, when we, I don't mean dialogue, I meant dialects. So are there the concept of dialects like we use in spoken language rather than a written language? Uh, Is there a similarity in your mapping in RIF to what we would ultimately come out with natural language like English?
1: Um, Well, the similarity is is that we use the word dialect to indicate that there's a sort of a, a relationship between two dialects where one came from the other so you can imagine this basic logic dialect um, it, at the moment is the only dialect we have uh, and as I described you know it's uh, it's a horn positive horn and it doesn't have negation you could easily extend this uh, dialect with negation and get a new dialect and so the relationship between the new dialect with negation and the old is such that any rule in the old dialect means the same thing in the new dialect,
2: um, but not the other way around. And uh, the relationship between framework and uh, the BLD is not, not very clear to me.
1: So the framework is... Um, uh, uh, basically a formally defined, you can think of it almost as a menu of syntactic and semantic features that you could use to build a rule language. Um, So BLD makes a particular set of choices, for example, eliminating negation. Um, And the framework is supposed to allow you the flexibility to define a dialect that you know, does all the things, you know, supports all the things you, you want to support uh, without having to figure out the semantics yourself. The semantics are all of, of all the structures are defined in the framework, and you just put them together to, to form your dialect.
2: So multiple dialects could work in a framework and could support B2B type business rules?
1: No, the framework is not something that's intended to be uh, implemented. It's not an implementable thing. Uh, The framework is a tool that you would use as a dialect designer to specify the syntax and semantics of your rule dialect.
2: Are the BLDs are executable in a business process sense in B2B situations? Is that a... Potential application of
1: RIF? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, they're pretty simple rules. They don't have uh, events. They don't have retraction. Uh, they don't have actions. But um, I mean, as, as long as your the, the kinds of rules you're imagining writing have uh, this um, condition and consequent type um uh, structure then this would be suitable
2: and my last point is that in databases uh, shared by let's say multiple agencies of the say federal government for example uh could these uh, rules be applied to those uh, large data warehouses where information sharing is based on rules like the standard rules engines are being used today in non-ontological kind of space? Well, there are no
1: standard rule engines. Um, That's one of the goals of RIF is to try to provide some interoperability between the rules engines that are out there. I mean, at some level, the answer to your question is yes, uh, these rules could be used for that kind of uh, federation that you often see uh, rule engines being used for, but again, a lot of the actual implementations that are used in those kinds of systems are production rules, which have, um, in particular, retraction. Uh, there is no retraction in BLD. So if part of your federation, uh, includes the ability to retract, uh, you know, elements of your database, uh, you cannot use BLD. However, there is another, dialect uh, that's, as I said earlier, in the very early stages of its specification that will correspond more closely to production rules. So, I mean, there's a vision here that these kinds of rules could be used for federation and integration. Uh, but, again, you have to keep in mind that there's a very simple horn-based rule language, so not all uh, the kinds of mappings and rules you'd want to specify in a rule language can be specified in BLD. You need uh, significantly more power.
2: Okay. Thank you. I will let others ask. Otherwise, I'll uh, come back for some more clarification.
3: Okay.
2: It's been a great talk.
1: Thank you, thank you thank Robbie,
0: you. and thank you, Chris. Uh, again, uh, if you have questions, uh, please uh, press this hand button at the chat room or press 1-1 one, one on, on your phone keypad. Uh, I, uh, Peter, I'm here. I actually have a question for Chris. Uh, Chris, how do you see adoption of uh, RIF coming along? I mean, I, I guess people who are closest at are the members of your team at present in maybe possibly uh the uh, rules engine type vendors uh how do how do you
1: see uh, those coming along i mean in in terms of adoption it's too early to tell unlike a lot of other the w3c standards efforts um well unlike owl uh there was not an existing there was nothing in place that we that, that we worked with. OWL started with a language called DAML plus OIL, and there were already implementations of DAML plus OIL when when the OWL spec was finished, and it wasn't that hard to migrate those implementations to OWL. In this case, there are no RIF implementations. We didn't start with anything. We started with a blank slate. Um, so it's very difficult to tell. The, the, as I said, the BLD will hit last call uh, at the end of this month, um, it's undergone steady change uh, since last June, uh, it stabilized about February this year. It's been more or less stable, although it's gotten some changes since then. I don't think a lot of people know that, and um, so it's, it's difficult to say. I have no idea what the adoption is going to be. My perception is that a lot of people need rules. A lot of people using RDF need rules and not um, OWL, uh, but um, we, it's just too early to tell if
2: that's actually going to happen
1: here or if BLD gives them what they need.
2: Okay. The so yes. rules are sitting on – sorry. Um, uh, is, if there's no other question, I'll go ahead. So the uh, we, we rules have, uh, are sitting hand on up, top uh, of Ravi? logic, or they are like a middleware that glues the logic with vocabulary?
1: Uh, I didn't hear
2: the question anyway, Peter. What, what were you saying? No, no, it was Ravi. Could you repeat your question, please? Yeah, this is Ravi. Um, I was wondering, w- the rules are uh, like a glue or a middleware uh, integration point between... Um, OWL and logic, or do they s- uh, sit on top of uh, some kind of uh, managed logic? Uh,
1: I, I don't understand the question.
2: Well, uh, I see the first uh, couple of slides, five and six, and I see the placement of rules uh, parallel to OWL. Obviously, they supplement each other in some ways. And those are the areas of interest as to how can the rules interchange format help us execute the logical frameworks like CL or others. Right. Uh, well,
1: um, uh, I didn't really talk about that too much uh, there uh Certainly from the perspective of common logic, um, BLD is a very, very, very simplified form of common logic. It's a, it's a, a significant syntactic restriction on first-order logic. You, as I said, you can't have disjunction or existential quantification in a consequent, um, and there's a variety of other restrictions uh, that make it significantly less expressive than, than common logic. Um, the relationship to Owl we'll talk about in uh, in two weeks' time. It's uh, n- not an easy thing to describe.
0: Okay. okay. Uh, let's maybe uh, uh, go to our next uh, uh, person who has her hand up. That's Michelle Raymond.
3: Okay. My my question has, is more along the lines of the metadata specification. I understand that there's been some further work, and that that's um, you're using a kind of the frame syntax there for for the application of metadata. That, let me start make sure I'm I'm correct on that part.
1: Uh, the syntax for metadata uses the frames, the the, the okay. same frame syntax as the rest of the language.
3: Okay. Is, is that what
1: you
3: were asking? Yes, I wanted to make sure that that was clear because I know there was a question er, there was a question a couple months back on that. So that yeah, is the application of metadata over segments of, um, well, essentially, when you, when I develop a, a particular description or a dialect, I've got a lot of dialect and I'm defining the different components within it. I want to make it a modular rule, set of rules. And so the metadata that I'm putting over that is in each group within the rule structure and then I can build up a larger dialect using those rule subsegments. Is there anything uh, planned or tool-wise where metadata – the metadata specification part uh, – right now I can pull it out on my own, but if uh, I could share that with others, then we could then have sets of rule structures that could then be used um, – Basically, like a, creating a library. Is that in the works? Is that part of the process?
1: Um, you could do you can do that. I don't know what you mean by in the works. The the you can certainly scrape out the metadata and, and write RIF rules over it, or store it in an RDF store, or something like mm-hmm. that. And that's why we chose that syntax.
3: Yes. However. But, yeah. uh, the metadata that, because basically I also am defining the metadata. So if I want to have a metadata standard that goes over a certain um, domain usage of rules. So if I'm dealing in the batch process control and they are using um, semantic web technologies, uh, we're not talking about, going into all of the details of the batch but we want to basically turn those into segments and share them across industry can what is the is there a path for um, publishing different dialects and the metadata is there anything that would be treating yeah. the metadata in and of itself because I could essentially just write, Straight metadata. I could write a schema for metadata. And I'm not sure that's uh, the right answer.
1: I'm not sure. Um, you're using the word dialect, I think, differently than, than I did. So a RIF dialect um, uh, isn't distinguishable oh. from, from, from the metadata format or anything like that. Uh,
3: a specific instance—if we've instantiated, uh, we have a file that uses this logic dialect, um, and within that logic dialect, there is metadata. Is that, am I stating that correctly?
1: You want? Are you saying you want to, to have a dialect that controls what metadata needs to be there? Correct. Yes. Since they're both, no, the framework. I mean, you could, yeah, you could. You, I guess you could define the dialect that is that as part of the written, in the written specification, um, says, or even in your XML schema definition, says that um, these metadata elements have to be present on these um, other elements. Uh, I, I suppose you could do that at the at the XML schema level.
3: But it's contrary to the actual specification at this time, which states that metadata is almost always optional.
1: Metadata is always optional.
3: Okay. So uh so I'm maybe I'm I'm just uh this is probably just not the right level of tool for me. And I'll come back and listen then on the all owl part, which I know is overkill for some of what we're doing. But find the happy
1: medium. Okay. Is that? Um, I mean, if you want to, I don't know if we have time. I don't really understand what your what your requirement is, so I don't know if this is me if this is capable of meeting it or not.
3: Yeah. Well, I looked at your when you went through the examples of where to hang metadata and what we've done before. Um, you know, it, it hanging it,
1: metadata on rules.
3: Right, and that's what we want. We want to know about the rule. That's precisely what we want to know about. What is yeah. this rule? Yeah. Uh, and so it, I understand that it's doable. I'm, what I'm kind of getting the suspicion is that maybe it's not um, it's going to be a best practice to do that, and that I, I need to be sticking with, with uh, the common logic or something.
1: Well, common logic is not going to help you either. You, you if you want to require um, that people specify certain meta, you, you want to say you can't write a rule unless you say who wrote it or whatever whatever the required metadata is.
3: That's part of the rule.
1: Uh, what's that? Uh,
3: in common logic, I can make that as part of the rule. Essentially, that part of the data element that needs to be present when you are um, applying this. You have to have it, – it, it won't validate. I, I can say that it won't validate unless this type of thing exists, and this thing is metadata. The concept is, is metadata that must exist.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar with XML schema, but it's a, a pretty trivial XML schema um, operation to require – that certain elements of the syntax have certain other elements under it. Yeah. Uh, so if, if it's just a syntactic constraint that you wanna make sure that every group has this piece of metadata on it with a value for this other tag, um, it's, again, to, to someone who's familiar with XML schema, it's, it would be pretty simple to add that to the XML schema for, um, for BLD.
3: Correct. That's the easy part. The, the part that I was trying to get at was whether or not that uh, that was going to be a above and beyond what uh, BLD is really going to be applied for uh, you know, its application, and um, that's kind of what I'm hearing. So, I'll, I'll, okay. I'll perhaps I'll connect with you offline further on this.
1: Sure. Okay.
0: Thank you. Okay, the, the the next part of this sequel actually is uh, rules in semantic web. Applications. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, besides uh, Jost Brown, uh, we also have uh, Leo Oberst, uh, Mike Dean, and Martin O'Connor uh, on the panel, I mean, two weeks from now. They probably will be approaching the rules application from very different vantage points, I believe. Uh, uh, Leo is going to talk about an implementation where he is uh, implementing in, in Prologue. And Martin and Mike are going to talk about uh, SWIRL applications. And Jost Brown are probably uh, giving more, providing more details uh, on RIF. So come and see if things get clearer uh, in a couple of weeks. So uh, we are sort of running close to time, so maybe uh, one more comment or question uh, before we close the session.
2: Is go there on. anyone else? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm away from... Okay, your hand is still up, so Thanks. why don't you go ahead, oh, uh, yeah. uh, I am, uh I'm seeing some... Uh, other papers by you, Dr. Welty, on uh, uh, defining sufficiency or uh, adequacy of ontologies. Um, Would you kindly care to comment on how um, some, I mean, meta-properties that you discuss in Ontoclean, for example, or ARC that you just described, and as we are, some of us are common to understanding minimum required attributes for defining ontologies so we can design open repositories, distributed repositories appropriately. So if in that context, would you care to comment about the relationship of RIF and your other ontology sufficiency criteria? Um.
1: I've never really thought about it. I, I don't think of rules being uh, overlapping that much with the work that I've done in ontologies. Uh, it's, um, you know, they're just orthogonal interests. Um, so Well,
2: uh, the, the, the RIF depends on ontology concepts, right? Say that again? Doesn't the RIF depend on ontology
1: concepts? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you mean by ontology. In, in my uh, in the work that it doesn't relate to any of the work that I've done in ontology, and or at least not that I've not that I've seen or thought about. So. Um, you know, I, I'd have to think about it more. I, I don't honestly don't n- haven't thought about what kind of connection there might be.
2: And I guess it's too early to comment about how it relates to all. Um, again,
1: that, that's a, the answer to that question is is complicated. Uh, so we've we've dedicated some time in in, in two weeks for Yosta Brown, who's actually worked
2: on that, <laughs> to discuss it. Will we get to hear him peter? Yes oh, uh, okay.
0: that that's uh yours is one of the panelists in uh, on the june twenty sixth session so uh let's hold and hold off until thank then. you
2: sir i mean i I also need time to absorb these complex concepts. They are not easy, but thank you for bringing them early to our forum.
0: Well, on that, uh, let's thank uh, Chris Welty for uh, sharing his work and the work of their uh, RIF uh, working group at W3C with us, and we shall look forward to seeing the uh, the final call specifications and look forward to having that being a bridge between all the uh, disparate
1: uh, rules engine people
0: uh, thank you Chris and you're welcome
1: thank you all this was the first time I presented risk to anyone so uh, you, you all have, can tell people that uh, you heard the first uh, RIF presentation <laughs> thank you
0: right that's it for today and uh, we have on the, the next week, uh, Mark Greaves uh, joining us on Thursday to talk about Halo, and uh, the week after that, we will have the Rules in Semantic Web Applications panel with, uh, as I mentioned, Leo Oberst, uh, Martin O'Connor, uh, Jost Brown, and Mike Dean uh, joining us then. Till then, uh,
3: thanks everyone for, for coming today, And thank you again, Chris. Bye-bye.